Hi, and welcome to another episode of Airfields of Dreams. I'm your host, Hank Rausch, and today we're going to do one of my favorite airfields of all time. I fly there probably every weekend sometimes during the summer. It is Hummel Airfield in Topping, Virginia. It's down at the mouth of the Rappahannock River where that enters Chesapeake Bay. Um, it's just got so many good things uh, going for it. I can't wait to tell you. First, we'll start with the numbers. It's short. It's uh, 2,100 feet. It's uh, the shortest paved airfield in Virginia. It's 30 feet high. It's like I said, it's it's right on the the mouth of the uh, the Chesapeake right there. It's got a uh, 45 foot wide uh, airstrip. It's a uh, airfield's in, in in really good shape. You know, there, there's no surprises there. It's got a, a runway. Uh, it's uh, oriented uh, one and one nine north and south. The good thing about it is there's no real obstruction. So even though being 2,100 feet, there's no real obstructions uh, landing either from the north or south. So uh, if, you, if you're taking off north or landing to the south, you're going right over the Rappahannock. You know, which um, you know you're over the water for a couple miles. It's not bad at all. Its uh, coordinates are 37, 36 north and 76 degrees 27 minutes west like I said it is right on the uh, right at the uh, the crook right there where the, there's a, a large bridge that passes the Rappahannock uh, right before the Rappahannock and empties into the Chesapeake and it's it's just literally right there on the the inland side of the bridge its history it was built by Frederick Hummel back in 1925 Frederick Hummel was an early aviator and he is uh, recognized as one of the early bird aviators of America for being one of the first people who flew in the you know, first uh, years after uh, the Wright brothers. He started flying in 1916 and he was a successful businessman. He uh, was uh, affiliated with uh, creating the Hopewell Airport uh, in uh, uh, more in central Virginia and he also created Hummel Airfield. He created it because he bought a summer home on the Rappahannock and decided to need an airfield. He was big. Uh, he and his wife were big uh, airplane aficionados, so they built this and operated it as a private airfield just to give access to the uh, surrounding uh, sea life, you know, boating, fishing, what have you. Up to 1970, when he uh, donated it to the county, and it's been county-owned ever since. But one of the uh, things that makes this airfield so special to me anyway is that he donated the actual airfield but the area around it basically kept within uh, his, his heirs. Consequently um, they control the land around it and there's no fence around it. It's, it's very unusual and that's something we're going to talk with one of the uh, uh, pilots here at, uh, at Hummel who uh, um, does a lot of things on the field. We'll, we'll talk about that. He, he runs a, uh, you know, he, he does flight lessons on the field and, and does a number of other activities. Hummel feels very special because it, it, it doesn't have this fence. It, it feels like you're part of it, whereas right now there's a big tendency in aviation that keeps, keeps uh, you know, the airfield away from people. It's some place you can look at from afar, but, you know, you can't, uh, say, walk up to the planes or anything. Well, this, there's, there's no fence. And, you know, you have planes literally landing right over your head. You know, if you're, you know, we'll talk about it. Uh, you can taxi your plane right up to the, there's a, a, a restaurant on the field right there, a restaurant and small motel. You can taxi your plane right up to the, the motel and the restaurant. And uh, it's that kind of old-timey feel for it that really doesn't exist anymore in uh, very many fields. The county is currently expanding it to 3,000 feet. And in order to do that, they're going to have to realign the runway. Right now it's oriented on, uh, like I said, 119. They're going to kind of, if you picture it, turn it uh, clockwise about 5 degrees so that they can expand it to 3,000 feet. That'll be interesting. Even only being 2,100 feet right now, um, it gets a lot of traffic. Well, it's a nice feel in itself. Also, it's got just about the cheapest gas anywhere around. You're not going to find any cheaper. So a lot of people go out of their way to, to land there. And I've seen twins land out there all the time. Uh, I've heard that a pilot has, has landed there. And it's a 2,100-foot field, remember. Um, Cirrus going there all the time. It's not even uh, an event to, to watch a Cirrus landing on it. So 3,000 feet, I, I think, will change the character a bit. We'll see. We'll, I guess it'll get a, a little more traffic. Let's see. Pyrep. So, uh, yeah, we talked about the field length. It's it's not a, a challenge at all, really. Um, it tends to have a, a crosswind coming off the bay in uh, early summer. And, you know, uh, 
my limit is usually uh, eight or nine knots and uh, if it gets much more than that you know I'm shooting down the, to Rappahannock I usually stop at Tappahannock which is just a little bit you know up the river Tappahannock is nice big fields 5,000 feet long you can you know land in there you know any way you want uh, like I said if you're landing on one nine or taking off on one it does put you over the water not a big deal if you're coming down the like I do coming down the, the Rappahannock all the time and you need to land on one nine you could either uh, you know just you know, enter on the crosswind or you know kind of jog over a little bit and uh, come you know dead uh, um, you know straight in from the north and if you do that you'll uh, you know you'll be going over you know a few miles of water but nothing nothing to be worried about as you come down the Rappahannock there's a lot of restricted area to your left there and Hummel is really the only it's the first place if you're coming down from that area that um, you got Pax River to the north it's really the first place you can uh, you know jog across Chesapeake right there is, is right about you know because all the restricted areas to the north unless you were cleared through the restricted area of course uh, depending on what they're doing if you want to get to Tangier that, that would kind of be your route there's no tie downs on the tarmac it's it's a real small field it'll, like I said it'll be interesting you know if and when they do expand this this field to 3,000 feet you know they, there's no more land there there's no uh, spare tarmac there's hangars there um, there's tarmac you can taxi to the uh, the fuel pump which is uh, self-serve there are some tie downs in the grass you can use and also if you taxi over to the the uh, motel and to the restaurant my advice would be if you're gonna stay overnight or something just just bring tie downs you know like um, that's that's really the, the way to go the FBO the FBO is uh, a small trailer it's got a bathroom in it it's got Wi-Fi got a couple couches and that's about it well there's there's a conference room too but uh, yeah it's just a small trailer um, and it's it's open uh, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Uh, that's it if you land outside of those hours and need to use the bathroom your best bet is going to be the pilot house uh, the restaurant over there Tom put a plug in for the pilot house I've been eating there many years it's um, you know the old joke you check your weight and balance after you take off it's, it's a lot of food doesn't cost very much it's um you know kind of like the diner diner style food it's 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 you know for, for my money it's it's great it really gives you a sense of you know kind of old time flying you know there's a mural of planes in there and you know you kind of picture how it was maybe in the 30s or something that you know people would land and just taxi over to the, the cafe it's uh it's a really nice place um there was a um, kind of a higher end uh, german restaurant right across the uh, the road from Panos Eckerd's that's closed now unfortunately um, your other options there's uh, Rudy's which is you know, just a couple hundred out a couple hundred yards uh, down the road from uh, where pilot house is that's a uh, barbecue pizza that's really about it the only other place it's a bit of a walk it's about a mile away it's across the road again it's Lockley's Marina and Lockley's it's a place that I love to go to it's kind of a beer and wine joint uh, right on the right on the creek that feeds off of uh, the Chesapeake Bay right there and it's just just beautiful just you know watching the the Chesapeake Bay from there is, is something you you get your wine or beer or what have you and you go out to the uh, they have picnic uh, picnic tables out there right next to the water and it's just really nice they serve kind of light bar food and also kind of seafood type food uh, they got a number of A&Ps on the field. Uh, Rusty's hangar is right across from the fuel pump, and he can do just about uh, whatever uh, whatever you want uh, done. It's a great jumping-off point for the bay if you have transport. Um, there's no real enterprise. There's no rental car that services a place. The nearest enterprise is Gloucester. It's 18 miles from Gloucester over to Topping. If you land there and you don't have transport, like I said, there's a... Uh, you know the pilot house is right on the field there. That, that's that's no question a great place during during their weekdays. You know during lunchtime they've got all you can eat buffet. I don't know like nine bucks or something. It's it's just a, a great deal. If you walk down the road about a mile towards the uh, Rappahannock, there is a nice little place you could swim at. There's a little swimming beach right next to the uh, uh, the bridge right there, and that that's real fun. You know you know people go swimming there, fishing there, what, what have you. Swimming season ends kind of early in the summer, 
you know, it might start earlier in May, but um, really there's just one day in latter part of July, August, when all of a sudden all the all jellyfish just appear one day and you don't want to be in the water then because they are painful and they will sting you and it does hurt. Every uh, October they have, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a festival there. All, all things recreate, all, all things uh, movable. It's a, it's a fly-in. They've got planes there. This one they did last October they had a bunch of military helicopters that flew in and were very interesting to see. People fly from uh, a, uh, you know, a good ways to come there. Uh, they've got a car show, which is just uh, fascinating. You know, all kinds of cars from 20s, 30s, what have you. They've got Wiley's Jeeps, all, all kinds of stuff you've never seen before. They've got boats there. They they haul them out on trailers. There's live music. It's really just a fun, fun time. They don't charge you a dime. You know, they, there's food vendors, whatever. Just an incredible time. I'd, I'd urge anybody. The one thing I'd warn you if you uh, fly in there for that festival is they will park you out in the grass somewhere and if you've, you know, if you've got a high prop clearance you're fine. My plane does not have a high prop clearance and uh, I had grass drains on my, my uh, prop after you know finding a spot right there. So that's the one thing I'd warn you about uh, flying in there during that is you will be taxiing over a lot of grass. All in all, it's a, a fantastic airport. Like I said, it's got this small-time vibe that really doesn't exist at a lot of airfields anymore. Um, it's always a nice break for me for the winter. You know, if I fly down in northern Virginia, um, eastern Panhandle, West Virginia, I fly down there, it's always like 10 or 20 degrees warmer. So it's like flying from winter into spring or from spring into summer. It's, it's, it's really a... It's really a great little break, and it really feels like you're on the sea, too. When you fly over, um, you've got turquoise water. You can see the sandbars. You see all the little fishing boats and all the boats. It's just, it's like a total break from the mountains, you know. It's like you, it's the first place, really, if you're coming from the north where you can feel like you're on the sea is, is landing at Hummel. I highly recommend it to, to anybody that would like to, uh, um, you know, just, just a day trip in, in the area. And also... Like I said, it's uh, a well-known spot for cheap gas, and uh, you got everybody uh, flying these big planes in there to take advantage of the uh, cheap gas. And now we'll go to our interview with the pilot. Uh, for this interview, I'm going to uh, talk to Michael, who has been on the field for a very long time. He's uh, really an institution. He flies a World War II trainer plane gives rides in it. He also gives flight instruction on the field, and it's just a wealth of knowledge. So I think it'll be uh, very interesting for everyone. So we're recording now, and I'm talking with Michael. Start off with how long have you been flying out of here, Michael? Oh, <laughs> so um, I have flown into this field the first time probably in '98 or '97. It's long enough ago that back then. The runway numbers were different. They're all uh, made up by magnetic north, and of course, as we all know, magnetic variation, it creeps. And so when they uh, sealed the tarmac the next time, it was due to change the runway numbers from 36 uh, and 18 to 01 and uh, uh, 19. So that's how long ago. <laughs> and and what, what brought you to Hummel? Well, I had, I actually, 25 years ago, I ran an outdoor light flight school on the other side of the river and uh, out of a crop dusting field. And this was sort of thanks to the restaurant. It was a nice uh, place to, to stop over. And I also picked up flight students here that, to save them the long drive across the bridge and whatever else. Uh, so that's how I got to know the place. And then when I branched out into general aviation and... Uh, worked employed first as a flight instructor and charter pilot and then later on I opened up my shingle. So I basically in that capacity I've been here fully since 2003 and started my company in 2007. We do uh, provide flight instruction from private through commercial and instrument and then I do warbird rides and uh, 1943 Fairchild PT-19, which is one of only 98 worldwide left flying. And uh, I do checkouts in that airplane as well. And uh, I also 
in a non-commercial capacity, I also fly for the Forgotten Heroes Foundation. I fly two World War I uh, fighters. They are new build, but to original plans. A Newport 17 and a Fokker DR1 that are based uh, here in a hangar on the other side. So that pretty much sums my activities up here. So I, I've seen you flying those uh, those World War One replicas, and in, in, uh, usually during like May, May to September or something, you, you have those out. Well, I fly. I keep proficiency on during during the winter, so I I fly the Newport. It's still uh, insured throughout the winter. That one I fly to just to keep my hand at it. But then, like you said, usually in spring we start to get more active with those. Um, Hummel Field is Virginia's shortest public use paved runway. And also it's uh, from basically spring onward to June when the water is still relatively cold. So we get usually a sea breeze effect, which means we get somewhat of a crosswind. Uh, those World War I birds don't like that too much. So you have to be really stuck with the evening hours or um, you know, a little bit later on in the year when that wind situation has improved. We do several open house days here um, where I do flight demonstrations uh, in the World War One airplanes. Last year we did, it was a two or three of them, the last one in October. And so I do some flight demonstrations in the World War One birds. Uh, I borrow the PT-19 of a friend of mine and then my, my uh, part-time pilot he flies my airplane, and so we do some formation uh, demos and so on. So it's uh, pretty, pretty cool. And then at the end, they can all buy commercial rides at the end of the thing. It doesn't make us any money, but at least uh, that way it pays for all the gas that we burned up to give people a free air show. You know, there, the, that PT-19 sitting here, Michael, I mean, that that's like the face of Hummel to me. I mean, every I, I fly down here and... I tell people I fly this field. That's the first thing they say. <laughs> that's the first thing you are known. This, this this airfield is known because of that PT nineteen. Well, you know, it's so funny. Originally, I uh, spent some money on local advertising, and of course, the airplane does live in a hangar. It's only taxied over here uh, during the day to sit close to the road with that right sign on on the propeller, but. It turned out my best advertising was actually that airplane. And, and the, the airport is so unique in that respect as not having a parameter fence. And, uh, you know, it's, it's so sad. When you look in the supermarket, there's no magazine section anymore, so they're not going to lay their hands on flying magazine anymore, the, the young kids. Uh, there are no model, model magazines out there. So now at least... In this situation here, they can still see a live airplane, and there's, they're not separated by a parameter fence. You know, so many of the other general aviation airports, they, they, they seem so hostile by, by having that Cyclops fence around, and we are blessed here with a unique situation that we don't have that and hopefully never will. That's something that I, I think really struck me about you, Michael, was that you're really kind of, just like you're saying, you, you take a... Uh, people for rides or whatever and you're basically paying for the gas at that point but it's instilling kind of a, a love in aviation that we've we've kind of lost a lot in this in this country a little bit i was looking at the numbers how few pilots there are left in america there's something well, like just in the hundreds of thousands yeah it's uh, the population shrank it shrank on various grounds first off of course age you know that it, it was more popular with uh people back then, not to mention the fact you take a look at the people who flew in the 70s, the chances were pretty good they learned to fly during Second World War. There were hundreds of thousands of aviators trained during that war. Uh, add Korea to that, you know, where, where the, the United States uh, Armed Forces still trained and decent numbers of pilots. And of course, it was also much more affordable. Um, for all these reasons, the pilot population back then was much larger. Um, flying didn't really get that much more expensive. So as far as why it is not so popular with young people anymore, I do not know. Maybe they all spend too much time sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> well, that's all true. But, but what you hit your nail on the head, I think one aspect 
there is such a separation now. And, and I'll tell you something. I tell people I fly and I, I take them up. And the one thing they, they're they very surprised at is you can just hop in your plane and go like a car. They, they assume that you've got to talk to a controller. Well, that is true. However, there's, there's another thing too. Um, the financial situation of America changed. And it changed dramatically. I can see that by the type of students that I have in my flight school. So it used to be you had quite a few retirees. That was all before 2008 when the stock market did so poorly. You had middle class people in their 40s. And truth to be told, 20, 30 years ago, a couple both working as high school teachers, yes, they could have afforded to get their, their license and buy an elderly uh, airplane to fly around on a Sunday afternoon. So that whole demographic segment fell by the wayside. Nowadays, what, what you have is usually people who want to do something with it professionally. I have, you know, the majority of my students that I, that I have, uh, what, what, especially with the younger crowd, they all want to fly for the military or they want to become airline pilots. And uh, so that's more the, the crowd that, that uh, spends the, the money and, and makes that intellectual effort to, to become pilots. It's very transactional. They've got to, they're not just I doing it for not, the love of flight. I would not uh, call that transactional. You could uh, perhaps even say it the other way around. Why is it not true that somebody who decided instead of just flying around on a Sunday that he wants to make this a whole way of living, including earning his money? What about me? I'm exactly such a person. Yeah. And of course, uh, it is true that, you know, with a little flight school and my Warbird ride outfit, uh, it's making me not a rich man, but that's not uh, the, the point of it. I don't think that's the point uh, of it in life anyway. Hence, I'm also uh, volunteering for YEF, which is a great organization, uh, the Youth Aeronautics Education Foundation. They are actually based out of West Point, and they have a Cessna 152, and I volunteer for them, uh, basically making out of high school uh, students uh, pilots. So it's a little bit more than a Young Eagles. They're, they're, they're no, doing instruction. No, this is completely instruction. more than the Young Eagles because we, we see these people through uh, their pilot's license. So hope they have hopes, too, that with enough more donations uh, for the foundation that they can put some better um, equipment in there so that we can even see them through the instrument rating. So it's, it's, it's a very, very nice, very, very uh, well-run program. How do you find uh, students? Are you affiliated with the high school or, or any, any well, the, that people? F that foundation there, the, the, the YEF, they, they get their students they're affiliated with West, with West Point uh, High School. Um, that's where part of the ground school takes place. My own students here, of course, you know, that's word, word of mouth. And I'm listed with the usual websites that list all the flight schools in Virginia. So. Sure. And of course, true, uh, it is the fact as well that when it comes to uh, a checkout in a PT-19, which we do offer, but the requirement is for the full checkout, I want that person to already have a, in, in their possession a, a tailwheel endorsement. In other words, they're qualified to fly tailwheel airplanes. Uh, I'm not giving primary instruction on that, in that to get a tailwheel uh, endorsement in that airplane. However, uh, it's also people who want to buy a PT-19 or they already own one that's now coming out of the restoration shop and the insurance companies usually insist on the checkout and a decent number of hours and uh, aeronautical experience and it turned out that with the many hours that I've flown mine that I'm apparently the man I have flown that airplane over 3,000 hours in 13 years and we have had 3,500 uh, happy customers is that a difficult plane to fly? Like if I, I'm just used to like no, tricycle. No, it's a, it's a, as far as besides uh, aside the fact that it's a tearway airplane. For all the rest of it, it is an absolutely lovely airplane to to fly with perfect control harmony. But slight on the controls, yet stable. It's maneuverable, which all the things you normally never have in the same airplane. Either something is really light on the controls and flies finicky. 
or it's stiff and flies like a Cessna 182 that's designed to go from A to B. Uh, an airplane that actually has positive stability yet is fully aerobatic. I've never really encountered an airplane uh, like that. And uh, they took, did a couple of particulars in the design of it, like there's a lot of dihedral, in other words, the wings when seen from up front, there's a lot of a V to it. Uh, the controls are mass balanced with lead weights, so they're, they're counterbalanced, so they're very light. The whole airplane does not have cables that operate the controls. It's all push-pull rods, rods, bearings, and, and cranks, which of course makes for much smoother and lighter controls. Uh, so yeah, so considering that that was a primary trainer, this, there's a lot of engineering that went into that airplane. I'm surprised there's only uh, 98 left. Uh, very simple reason. It's a very simple reason. It's, it's twofold. Number one, in 1945, the government sold off all the primary trainers. So the primary other trainer was, of course, the, the, the Stearman, Stearman biplane. And the, the problem is this. The Stearman, the engine mount on, for, for these radial engines, is in so-called SAE-5, no, sorry, 4, SAE-4 mount. And everything from the stock Continental 225 to the 600 horsepower engine of a T6 Texan will fit that engine mount. So what people did in 45, they bought a Stearman and they bought a BT-13 mid-level trainer. They took the 450 horsepower engine out of that mid-level BT-13, gave the rest to the aluminum recycler, put that engine in the Stearman, took the front seat out, put a hopper tank in and finished was your, your crop duster. There wasn't even a purpose designed crop duster in this country till 1965 when the Grumman Act came about. So literally thousands of Stearman found a commercial niche. There was a commercial segment available sure. to, this air, to this airplane. Now the PT-19 on the other hand, it has an inverted six cylinder inline engine, the largest engine um, of that configuration made in this country. It already has, it's a 200 horsepower Ranger 440. And so with no larger engine available, and also having only one wing, it wouldn't make a very good crop duster. So all what, what happened to these PT-19s at the end of the war, they were sold off as cheap surplus for people who used them maybe in a flight school, yes, but mostly really they, they flew them on weekends as, as uh, amateur pilots. And of course, here comes the other downfall. It's basically a nearly all completely wooden airplane. Mm. So people who buy airplanes back then, the price was $800 for a really nice PT-19 at a time when a Chevrolet, a brand new one, would have been 1400 So you talk about half the price of a, of a normal car. car. So in today's money, that would be somewhere like $13,000. People who buy $13,000 airplanes today don't put them in hangars, and neither did the people back then. So all these PT-19s, they set outside, and of course, you know, you can't do that for very long to a wooden airplane. Came the late 50s, early 60s, it totally got the smell of a poor man's airplane because the whole country was littered with rotted away PT-19s. Yeah. And I, I can tell you in the early 60s, a, a guy that flew with me, uh, a couple of years ago, he said, when I was 19 years old, that was my first airplane, a PT-19. I bought it for $200. <laughs> so that would have been one-tenth of a car. So yeah. somewhat like $3,500, something sure. like that, $3,000. Sure. So he flew the bejesus out of it, flew aerobatics in it, did all kinds of things. It came the next annual. The, the mechanic said, oh, no, son, that one not anymore and he took a screwdriver and poked it towards the rear spar where, where the aileron attachment is and all that had gotten soft and that was the end of that airplane one one less left so it was until the 70s where people started to think man we haven't seen one of those in a while and they were flying so nicely and that's when the first ones got got restored nowadays though since it's wood 
if you hire a restoration shop to, to restore one of those airplanes, you can easily sink $150,000 on this airplane. Sure. Because sure. the wing center section, which is where usually where the moisture was collecting from the cockpits and so on, the wing center section to redo that, that in itself is 1,200 man hours. So you talk about in the neighborhood of $50,000 on just that wing center section. Plus a non-standard engine, too, I imagine. That's probably difficult to find parts for. Well, here is the thing. Um, I, first off, I must admit, without my friendship with the Dinest family, who are the gurus when it comes to everything, uh, Ranger engine and, and PT-19, I could not have run my right operation for 13 years. I have two engines, one that was that's installed and a spare engine that gets overhauled again. Meanwhile, whilst the other one flies. <clears throat> and the parts situation has gotten worse. There used to be an outfit in California, well, they still exist, but they're out of many parts, Fresno Air Parts. They had bought up the whole loot for the Ranger engines in 45 or 46. And, uh, for example, there are no more new pistons. Also. You know, back to our discussion, it's no wonder nobody's flying anymore with costs like that. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, um, the middle class guy anymore, you know, used to be able to, you know, have a Cessna 172 or something. It's, it's getting hard. But uh, back to you taking kids for flying, I, I got to ask you, uh, I take kids flying, um, question they always ask me is, let's do a loop-de-loop. That's got to be the number one question kids ask me. Do, do kids ever ask you that? Actually, funny enough, they don't. Not, not they don't ask formally for a loop-de-loop. I usually do something like a wing over the stuff where we don't, uh, I have parachutes for the airplane. I, we, we, we do offer a formal 45-minute uh, aerobatics ride. Uh, as far as part of our commercial rights in the PT-19. However, if I do take a kid up, you know, parents pay for the ride or something, um, that's that's not that right, you know. And, and so, yeah, we do a couple of wingovers or stuff like that. But mostly they're so intrigued by the fact that I usually let them fly it, you know, so they get some stick time on it. Have you ever seen somebody you took up as a kid that came back for instruction later? More than once. As a matter of fact, a uh, guy that visits me fairly frequently usually stays for a couple of days with me. Uh, I gave him a ride on the PT-19 at the World War II weekend in Reading. And, oh God, it's years ago. He was like 14 years old. Now he's 21. Of course, he looks totally different from way back then. He was a scroungy kid. Now he's a big <laughs> dude. And uh, so he joined... Pretty much right after that flight, um, he joined the Soviet Air Patrol, and for him it worked out very nicely because they had a really active chapter up there. And he got this deal, they gave platoon leaders the, the option to get up to 10 hours to the first solo, including the first solo, for free. And they just, in a military style, they unloaded a whole bunch of books and manuals to study and so he got his first solo that way and then I did the rest with him here since we got to know each other better and today he actually is he is finishing this May at uh, Virginia Tech he is in charge of the all the PE there of the RTC guys so he's RTC he already has his commission and he has a slot for flight school and I got him through his private we tried to get his instrument rating still done with before he goes active it must be tremendously gratifying to see somebody you you take oh, up yeah. just I for had, a ride. Out of this area, I had actually two guys. They they went subsequently through naval flight training. They just both got their. Uh, they both graduated and both fly F-18s now. Um, then of course, Garrett and Thomas. Uh, Garrett flies for the Coast Guard now. He flies an MH sixty. So yeah. There were quite a few, quite a few people like that. Well, to, to wrap this up, what, what do you think? What do you see as a future for for Hummel Airfield? <laughs> I don't know. Well, for starters, we apparently are getting a longer runway. I don't know what to make out of it. Of course, uh, 
the rest doesn't grow bigger. You won't have more space for refueling there, getting past the fuel docks and so on. So I don't know. I just hope it does become not one of those uh, yeah, transactional airports. I have seen this all around in Virginia, you know, it, it all caters more and more to corporate flying, corporate aviation, and uh, that's not my, my type of airport. I love, I love airports where there is a, for example, like Hampton Roads, they have a, an EAA chapter there, you know, so I, I like airports where there is communal pilot activity, where there are historic airplanes flying, and we have that. And I just hope it stays like that. Two, two things that made me fall in love with this trip. You know, one was the fact you, you, you said, Michael, is a, you know, there's, there's no fence around it. And it feels, you know, planes are literally taken off on your head and there is no separation. And the other is this little cafe over here. I mean, it's like an old-timey strip from the 30s. You know, it's got that's this right. cafe right. and that's it's right. got right. planes like, like yours right. sitting out here on the, on the right. grass. Yeah, no, it feels, it feels very much like general aviation used to feel. And of course, when this uh, pilot house in here next door was built, I mean, it's not catering to that market anymore, that market segment. However, when it was built uh, a long, quite a long time ago, well, and more people traveled in little airplanes, of course, that was the whole attraction. You can actually taxi right in front of your motel room. I mean, the, it was literally the pilot house in. Yeah, and and, so, and the cafe is called the Beacon. Yep. And there's right. a mural yeah. there of all that's the planes right. flying that's in the right. cafe. So, you know, things change. So they obviously, who is staying at that motel has changed dramatically. But um, that was a, at least the original setup for this. Uh, so. Yeah. So I I hope I hope that. Uh, it will stay a nice rural airport in many respects. However, the greatest news is that the county obviously made a commitment to this airport. So it will not be uh, developed into something else. Mm. That's the most important thing. I've seen that. Ha Chapel Hill, you know, is gone now, down, down near Raleigh. Listen, it's, it's gone. It happens all over the place. I mean, I can, I can list, uh, there was Heathville on the other side, on the north and next side. That's gone. Uh, there was Hopewell. Hopewell was a very fancy, in a very, since you talked about 1930s, in a very nearly British 1930s way, because flying back then was very much a social thing. So Hopewell had um, two crossing grass runways. It wasn't paved, but had a very fancy um, club building, flying club building. So pretty much like like it was in the 1930s and 40s in, in Britain. And there is a very, very nice book. I don't know if it's still in print. The Lost Airports of Virginia. Very cool. There were airports all over the place. Uh, lively on the other side of the river. They're lively, the old lively airport. You can still see it from the air. Once again, grass but two runways, and you can still see that from the air when you fly up the Rappahannock River. On I the know right exactly side. where, because I was and just flying down just now and that, I saw those. That used to be I'll an be auxiliary done. field, <laughs> a U.S. military auxiliary field, and tell you also how popular aviation was still as far as the in, even in the 1970s. They had an annual air show there. Think about that. Yeah, we've lost a lot. Yeah. So that was the Lively Airport, for example. So, yeah, the, the lost airports left and right. Yeah. And, and quite a few of them, they are sort of on the verge. Uh, my commemorative Air Force squadron, I, I used to be the uh, ops officer and the uh, instructor slash check pilot of that squadron. We were down in Franklin. Squadron originally originated at Hampton Roads Airport, then they went down to Franklin, cheap mm -hmm. rent, a big hangar, but there's also nothing going on. So you can't really organize events if nobody comes, right? And the Franklin Airport, that is, I mean, there is nothing going on. Same with, with Emporia. 
You know, I mean, I guess, you know, there's federal money going to those airports, you know, and that's how they can keep them open, but there's nothing going on. And interestingly enough, Franklin, uh, the Navy wanted to use it as an outlying field, a little mm -hmm. bit like Fentress. Mm -hmm. And, but the city wasn't interested. This was pretty much just about the time when we, when we left. Because Gordon once again decided, oh, we need to go where there is more more public traffic. Well, so we relocated again to, to uh, Hampton Roads, and the squadron was just so overaged, uh, we couldn't keep going. One of the things that hardens me here is um, any given nice weekend, there must be two dozen people flying in for gas. I mean, uh, the little gas pump here is... Uh, well, we have the cheapest gas on the East Coast. Well, a lot of the fist spotters come here too, I think. Well, they have these days, so they have their own tanks up in Reefville. Okay, okay. So they come during the day, say if they spot out at the mouth of the bay, they're not flying up to Reefville, why would they? So they just fill up here or for their uh, breakfast break or so, you know, so they will, they will throw it up here, yeah. So a lot, a lot will too depend on the fact, as far as general, general aviation and its survival is concerned, how the fuel price will develop. I mean, we had we had even here, five, what is it, six years ago, whenever it was, when it peaked, even here the price was like $5.50 per gallon. No, I know what you mean. I go to Oshkosh just about every year, Michael, and um, I got to tell you, man, I sit in the back of the seminars, everybody's got gray hair, every single person. You know, I mean, there's, we might be a dying no, breed I tell here. You, no, I tell you something uh, rather surprising. So think about this. So say, for example, the parents are fairly well here in this, and the son wants, or the daughter for that matter, wants to learn to fly. And dad says, okay, let's go ahead. So the girl, the boy is driving out in the family car, starts texting with all the excitement to go into my to my first flying lesson of course yeah. the car will swerve to the left but it self-corrects itself into the lane yeah. now the cell phone falls down <laughs> fishing for the cell phone the truck ahead steps on the brakes the car automatically brakes and so now that person pulls up of course not before at the traffic light turn left in one mile and mm -hmm. uh you know the with the automatic uh, uh, voice that gives you your directions. And so the person, the young person shows up here. This is a culture shock because in a way, aviation is terribly backwards because when have we been around an item the last time where the operator makes it safe and not the item? I mean, cars have, what, 15 airbags now or 10 airbags? I don't know. But the point is, it's when, when people, when parents ask, oh, what car should I buy for my, for my child that's really safe? Well, why, how about teaching your child to drive properly? And aviation is, is exactly, it's, 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 uh, it's operator-centered. So here they are, they have to learn how to, to read a chart. Heck, when they never did that in their lives. They, they, they have to understand the mechanical items, the engine, what engine. When they open the hood of their car, the engine is covered by a piece of plastic. You know, it's to discourage anybody to ever look at it. I mean, the truth is, when we were young, and I don't want to sound like an old geezer here, but it's the truth, when we were young, parents bought, or we ourselves bought some old jalapi, which of course could be repaired by the owner. Nowadays, cars are practically irreparable by, by, the, by, by the people who own them. You need dealerships and specialty tools and special electronic equipment. And hence, your average young person has no more understanding of the technology they use every day. You mentioned something else about being responsible for your own. That's one thing I see as a big difference with flying is that it, there's very few activities where once you're up there, that, that's it. It's... It's all on you. You can't pull over to the side of the road. You can't well, blame anybody. That, that is unique to airplanes, the fact that it's the only device ever made by man that only does its job properly when it moves fast enough. You can play dead man even when you swim. Try that in an airplane. 
So hence, you need to be always two steps ahead. Try at least two, yeah. so that at all times you are at least one ahead, because if you are with the airplane, you're already behind. That's one of the most fundamental truths and, and about aviation. And, and it's counter to culture nowadays. Now it's, it we, we live in a very safety conscious culture where it's not your, it's somebody it's, else's responsibility. It's, it, no, it's not safety uh, conscious. It's, it's be pretending to be safety conscious. Because if I, if I replace ability with equipment, I haven't created safety. You, you've, you've abdicated and it. We, and basically the same starts happening in, in aviation. Instead of teaching people how to fly properly, now we have all kinds of angle of attack gimmicks and whatnot that, that where, where red light comes on or you, you get zapped into your behind, or whatever happens when you, when you mistreat your, your piece of machinery, and, uh, which is of course a, a departure, but it is in this world in which aviation takes place, it's a necessary adjustment because otherwise nobody will fly anymore. They expect that. They expect the gimmick to take care. The little yellow light on the, on the rear view mirror that somebody is beside you. There is an article in this month's uh, EAA magazine that addresses that very specific issue that uh, people coming through training right now are just trained to push the buttons and, and there's, they're doing things like uh, people with commercial tickets are like landing, you know, 10 mile uh, um, uh, tailwind, you know, they just, just, you know, just, just following something rotely and, and not, not right. thinking about the flying. No, that's right. And, and now it, that, that I, see a, I see one really interesting development, not so much here in the United States yet, but to become an airline pilot, there are quite some parts of the world in Africa or in China where you fly from day one, you fly in a simulator of a big airplane. You never, ever have flown in a little Cessna or something like that. And of course, the, the physics between a big airplane and a small airplane are the same. But whereas 15 knots of wind would run those physics really down to a pilot in a small airplane, it will take 40 knots of wind or 50 knots of wind to experience the same results, but they are there. And since an airliner lands in 40 and 50 knots, there may be all of a sudden surprises. Or people just, they, they're so removed from the fact that they are actually sitting and flying, um, or at least managing, a very fast moving vehicle. I mean, some of the airline flying is the, it's, it's the safest, safest mode of transportation. Ever, ever conceived by man, but when you look at the mishaps, the ones that happen, they, they, they are these, you ask yourself, what is going on? Why did that cause a crash? They not, why did they not uh, check, check their means of airspeed? Only because the sensors freeze over. My God, there's everything from, from your basic instrumentation, attitude indication, whatever else. There's even, if you get slow, the sound around your windshield, around your cockpit, becomes less and a different pitch. I mean, there is no more direct relationship on what's going on outside. Uh, that many countries now, to become an airline pilot, you sit in a big plane simulator from the first moment. Mm. Now, of course, one thing I do, I do have to give the airlines, by having these really fancy million-dollar simulators, you can practice things in these simulators that you could never practice in a, in a real plane, like they used to do it there. The proficiency checks, well, they did some fancy stuff in a real airliner, and then sometimes it didn't work out and they lost an airplane that way, you know. Uh, it's not unheard of in the 60s and, and early 70s. So that came a long way. Now a lot of stuff uh, can be practiced, like what comes to mind is that um, Microburst that the DC-10 mm -hmm. endured the every that windshield uh, microburst yeah. and, and every airline pilot in their proficiency checks they have to fly that very uh, profile. Another another aspect too is cost. I know I fly to Martinsburg. We've got the C-17s up there, and unless there's something dusting up, those planes generally don't fly. They they get most of the proficiency in the simulators just because yeah. it's so dang expensive to, well, to as operate. I, but as I say, I mean, that's the main thing. But the other thing is, as I said, there's certain failure points or so on. You couldn't do that in a, in a real airplane as a simulated emergency. 
because you would jeopardize yeah. the airplane. Sure. To finish this up, right. you, you got to tell me about your your Messerschmitt. We we we, we can't finish this this uh, without without you telling about your All Messerschmitt. Right. Uh, Messerschmitt three <laughs> yeah, right. let, let's hear it. So I love these things, I, and I wanted one since I was really little. And so when I was oh god, twenty two or so, twenty two years old, or twenty one, twenty two I think, I bought one. And explain so what it is. It's a Messerschmitt three wheeler, three wheeler, uh, built by Messerschmitt, designed by Fritz Fenn. It is a minimum uh, transportation car, two people sitting in tandem, two wheels in the front, one in the back, and over, over the whole thing is a plexiglass canopy, like in an airplane, and you don't have a steering wheel, you have a, a yoke. <laughs> and the, the rear wheel is the driven one, 10 horsepower, two stroke, 200cc, Fichtel Sachs. And since you sit tandem, there's no frontal resistance, hence, uh, 60 horsepower give you actually 60 miles an hour top speed, which is pretty efficient. And uh, I own it since, well, what is it, 81 or 82? Yeah, 81. And can you drive it around here? Of course. Okay. I, it's, it... I drove it to the, for, for a while, uh, I drove it once a week at least to the gym. It's across the back, which is 44 miles. And uh, so, yeah, I, I bought it back then. Uh, Restored it in 83, and uh, when I visited my parents in Germany, I, that was always for those weeks my daily transportation after I had left Germany. And then four years ago, I finally got it shipped over here. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much welcome, for this. Uh, and uh, man, I hope, I, hope you're, I hope this place continues. It'll be a shame if, uh, if it ever goes away. We'll, we'll lose a lot. Well, I don't plan on giving up this business. So Good to hear. Well, you know, the biggest thing right now is, uh, I don't know what will happen with the beginning of that runway construction. I just heard a couple of days ago that it will be March. But I know one thing, the plan is they want to basically, for local pilots, they want to keep the grass area alongside, where I take the World War One airplanes up. They want to keep that available to, to, as, a, as a runway. Oh, so we'd lose our uh, our main runway for a while here? We, we'd... For a little while, because oh. since it's in an angle, it basically intersects somewhere in the middle. Right. And uh, so purportedly it's not supposed to be closed for very long. Okay, okay, well. So. Okay, I'll end this. Thank you so much, Michael. All right. This has been Airfields of Dreams. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we will go to Front Royal, Virginia, which is another uh, smaller airfield at the uh, kind of the north end of the Shenandoah Valley. It's, it's uh, really fascinating to fly into, and we'll talk to a air ambulance pilot. Until next time, this has been Airfields of Dreams.